Hi, friends. Welcome to the Rock Your Joy podcast. I'm your host, Anya Rock, a woman, artist, entrepreneur, mom, and high-performance coach. I'm working on becoming the best version of myself and inspiring others to do the same. This is my invitation to you to be part of the collective shifting of consciousness. Let's choose love. Let's choose joy. And let's rock your joy one day at a time. Hi, friends. Welcome back. I absolutely love this conversation as a mom of a girl, someone who thinks of herself as empowered, a feminist, uh, someone who has studied leadership and would like to pass along those traits to her own daughter. What I've come to realize as my daughter matures and grows into very much her own woman is that there are so many messages and so many influences coming from outside our home. And this task to raise a strong, empowered leader as a woman is much more nuanced and complicated than any of us might have imagined, and particularly in today's world. So I absolutely am thrilled to share this conversation with you. If you have girls in your life or wish you had more tools to be able to use your voice and step into your own power and authority, listen up. My guest today is Simone Marion. She is the co-CEO and co-founder of Girls Leadership, a national education nonprofit that equips girls with the skills to exercise the power of their voice. In Girls Leadership's 10 years as a nonprofit, it has impacted over 200,000 girls and is on track to reach 1 million girls by 2023. Simone began her career teaching in New York at Brayerly and the Young Women's Leadership School and taught at the Oprah Winfrey Leadership Academy in South Africa. She now presents the latest research and work on girls around the country, including at Google, Facebook, Morgan Stanley, PwC, UBS, as well as the Today Show and KQED's Forum. She graduated from Bryn Mawr College and later earned a master's degree in education from NYU. She now lives with her family in Berkeley, California. Welcome to the show, Simone. Thank you. Glad to be here. Wonderful to have you here. So, Simone, for those who don't know about Girls Leadership, an organization that you work with, tell us a little bit about it, but also, you know, your mission, I would imagine, is woven into it. So I'd love to hear kind of your story as well. Definitely. So Girls Leadership is a national educational nonprofit. We're based in Oakland, California, and thanks to COVID, we now run our programs nationally. It's amazing, uh, and globally, in fact. And our mission is to teach girls to exercise the power of their voice. And we start doing that work in kindergarten when typically the power of girls' voices is real strong. So I think a lot of parents and caregivers of little ones will look at our mission and be like, um, you know do we really need a nonprofit for my girl? Like, I, I think she's all good. I think we're, we got plenty of strength there. But the reason why we exist is because of what girls learn as they grow up, what makes them of worth and what makes them of value in our families and our schools and our communities often are messages that teach them to give up that voice in the name of fitting in and being liked and belonging and so in elementary school, we work with girls to prevent that loss of voice and confidence. And then in middle school and high school, we're really working with girls to see messages 
around gender norms and gender expectations and to help them push back against some of those pressures so that they can hold on to that power that they were born with that so many of us, you know, give up along the way. And we, most of our, when we return to in-person, our in-person work is um, strongest in the Bay Area and in New York, but we'll continue to run programs online for sure. And I think, you know, my own journey with this work, I'm a co-founder and the co-CEO of Girls Leadership, and it's really evolved as the organization has evolved. So when I started doing this work, it was 20 years ago. (laughs) I was in my mid-20s. I was living in New York City and just taking in, uh, working with Rachel Simmons, who's the author of Odd Girl Out and Enough As She Is. And so I was teaching in two different all-girls schools. And this really began for me in some ways as a very selfish endeavor that I grew up in New England. Um, I grew up in what I would call like stereotypical New England good girl culture, (laughs) which for me means I was born fine. Um, And if I ever wasn't fine, I was just taught to communicate that with like my eyes. (laughs) It was like, you know, I didn't say anything. So when I met Rachel in New York, she was teaching leadership. To me, this was like the missing curriculum in my life that I had had every educational privilege that I think a 20 something could have, but I did not know how to speak up for myself. I did not know how to ask for what I need. I didn't know how to make conflict an opportunity for change. There were so many things I didn't have. And so for me, I wanted to create this organization so that I could live a life of everyday leadership at the time, I didn't aspire to professional leadership. It was really more of a way of life I was looking for with my friends and my family. But then I could see with the girls that I taught across cultural differences, across socioeconomic spectrum, uh, that girls across these differences were learning different lessons about what it means to be a girl. But in all cases, they were learning to separate from their authentic selves, um, from their vulnerable selves. And so I what began as a selfish endeavor um, really connected to what, you know, I wanted for, for all girls. Amazing. So I, you said through COVID it's now online and you're able to reach more where in terms of the programming, you said sort of middle school and high school, but you also have programming for families and, and other influencers as well. So why is it so important not just to speak to the girls, but to their community and to every to other you know, people in their world? Yeah, I think it's always been fundamental to girls' leadership that we partner with the adults in girls' lives. And honestly, I feel like it's in part, it's such a, when our girls are growing up in a culture still that rewards them for being complicit and being agreeable and going with the flow and all that to ask them to be powerful and to use their voice can mean, you know, getting in trouble. It can mean a worse grade. It can mean losing friends. There's consequences to learning to be powerful, especially as you're growing up. And so our work with adults started in 2005 and it started organically because there was a group of moms that came to us individually after the girls had come to the summer camp. And these moms said to us, I love what my daughter learned in your program. I don't have these skills as her mom. Can you help me? (laughs) 
And so Rachel Simmons and I first did a pilot weekend for mothers of daughters with just the moms. And it was really great um, and totally transformative. But we found it was also really hard for moms to take time away from their kids. And it wasn't, there wasn't that privilege to make that choice consistently. So we started to develop what we call now girl and grown-up programs, where a girl comes to us with a key grown-up in her life. It is most frequently her mom that is in our programs, but we also have dads, we have aunties, we have nanas, we have neighbors, (laughs) you know, whoever's that person who she is learning, is that influencer that she's learning both the words of how to use the power of her voice, but also I think way deeper than literacy is permission. Like who's that adult that's giving her permission that this is okay not to be happy, content, and calm all the time as girls are so often taught to be. And so that work started with family-based work and we continue to do the family-based work because it's so transformational to teach a family, to change a family. But we, what we found after a few years of focusing on the family was that would always be relatively privileged opportunity to make change. That the ability to have that time to focus on your parenting is, I think, for all of us as parents, that's a very privileged thing to have. And we really wanted all girls to have these skills. And so we started focusing increasingly on educators in girls' lives. So looking at teachers, guidance counselors, sports coaches, community-based organization staff. And what's interesting about working with professionals is that as girls get older and when they're in these years where girls lose most of their voice and confidence, they're actually spending more time with professionals often than they are with parents. So it's like, you know, the middle school years, the high school years, it's a, the, the primary influencer is no longer, as much as we wish it were us as their parents, it changes. And so when we work with professionals, we have an opportunity to reach more girls because teachers can work with hundreds of girls a week, depending on their role. And we can work with a broader diversity of girls. And so now the girls that we impact at Girls Leadership they reflect our communities. So our communities are, most of them, the communities that we're in are more than 50% girls of color. And that's now true for the the impact of girls' leadership. We've got, it's about 60% girls of color in our programs. And how do you think this kind of work is influenced by race and ethnicity? Like it must be, I mean, it's interesting as you talk, because I think we could really dive into sort of on one level, we think our girls are, you know, by generation over generation, so much more empowered. And yet, as you're saying these things, I'm like, yeah, you know, it's true. There are so many messages of, you know, being fine and being okay and being calm and being quiet. And how do you see those differently through different cultures and ethnicities and race? And then how do you address those differently? Yeah, that's been a huge part of girls leadership's evolution over the last five years or so. In the beginning, we were really just looking at gender norms and expectations. And then, and probably because we were two white women who are founders. And so we were, I think, had the blindness that comes with privilege of seeing how this is so deeply, deeply impacted by race and ethnicity and and therefore culture. And so for the last four years, girls leadership 
did research just on this point to understand how does race and ethnicity impact girls' leadership development, their gender norms and expectations. And what we found is that what I think families of color have always known <laughs> uh, for, well, especially I should say, be more specific and say Black and Latinx families that have intentionally been teaching leadership and power to their daughters for generations that our research found that Black and Latinx girls had the highest rates of leadership identity, highest rates of confidence, and highest rates of leadership ambition for the future. And all of that correlated with similar high rates of identity and leadership in their parents and caregivers. So there was very intentional, there are very intentional messages being taught around the importance of leadership, the importance of mentorship, and in not only seeing leadership that looks like you, but finding someone to support your own leadership development. And so Black and Latinx girls have some of the highest rates of mentorship as they go through adolescence. And a key part to our research was also looking at how are girls seen by teachers And so our Ready to Lead report, which has over 2,000 girls across the country, also includes over 600 teachers. And the demographic makeup of teachers in our research reflects the demographic makeup of teachers in the U.S. It's about 80% white women. And so there's right now a a bit of a disconnect between who's teaching our kids and and the the way that demographics are changing for kids, which is becoming, you know, youth are now majority youth of color. And what we found with the teachers was that there was a perception of barriers to leadership for girls of color that was based on what they named was like lack of confidence, um, lack of support at home for leadership, low income levels, family structure barriers to leadership. And our research shows that these things like income level or family structure either make no difference in girls' uh, confidence and identity as leaders, or some of the things they saw, most of the things they saw as barriers like home culture or confidence, those are actually leadership assets that Black and Latinx girls have. And so what we were able to quantify and codify in this research is the different barriers to girls' leadership development that for some girls, those barriers are internal, like confidence. And, but particularly for our for girl, Black and Latinx girls who are being brought up to be confident, to lead, their barrier is external in that they are not seen as leaders and are perceived to have leadership barriers that are, aren't there and are therefore more likely to be punished or seen as a threat when they speak up. And so our approach has become now a girls' leadership, uh, a parallel path to supporting girls' leadership development, where we're both providing a curriculum to classrooms and to families that helps them develop girls' internal skills, while at the same time addressing the external systemic barriers that push our girls out of the leadership pipeline, you know, a decade before they have the chance to formally begin. Fascinating. Mm-hmm. And so complex. Mm-hmm. Yes. <laughs> And at the basis of all of this, and I guess now you're doing it on the parallel in terms of internal and external, but you talk a lot about social emotional learning. Can you talk about that and why that's at the core of this and how that, I mean, I think as parents, we sort of hear that phrase, but really break it down for us and kind of paint the picture in real terms instead of just catch lingo. 
Definitely. Yes. So as you said, social emotional learning is at the core of everything we do at Girls Leadership. Whether a girl comes to us in kindergarten and she's trying to work on her recess skills or a professional comes to us, you know, after 10 years of teaching, looking to support girls leadership in the classroom. So wherever somebody comes to us, we're really beginning with this question of, do you know how you feel? And this is what emotional intelligence, the definition of emotional intelligence, do you know what you feel? Do you respect what you feel? That's the hard part that is eroded over time as we grow up. And then do you have the skills to communicate your feelings effectively? None of us have a shot at communicating our feelings effectively if we don't both know and respect how we're feeling in a moment. And then I, I'll talk about how that works and then how, why is that the foundation of leadership? Because <laughs> I think there's often this like, okay, I get that, but how are these two things connected? So I think most kids are born with what I feel like is a running start to emotional intelligence in terms of like, you look at a toddler <laughs> or you look at a preschooler and it's like, do they know how they feel? And they don't get what they want. They wanted a red apple. You handed them a green apple and they throw a fit, right? They throw a tantrum because they're not getting that red apple. If you look at that kid throwing a tantrum through the lens of like assessing for emotional intelligence, would say like, do they know how they're feeling right now? Absolutely, right? Do they respect how they're feeling right now? Like crazy. We don't respect how they're feeling as they're adult, but they have infinite respect for the fact that they are so disappointed that you do not have a red apple. Are they communicating their feelings effectively? No, right? But they're four years old and that's our job. We're here to coach them and teach them. You know, it's okay to be disappointed and this is how you can vocalize it in a way that is most likely to get you the red apple next time and be more successful in communicating your feelings. But instead of teaching our young people and especially our girls, this is how to do the third part. Instead, we erode that foundation. And we say to, in in different terms, you should not feel disappointed, right? So if I ask, and once a month at Girls Leadership, we do a free parenting webinar called Raising Resilient Girls. And it's been really cool over COVID to do it consistently and nationally. And one of the questions in Raising Resilient Girls is, how is a girl expected to feel? So consistently, we hear happy, content, calm, and sometimes confident. Happy, content, and calm. Then we say, all right, you, an adult right now, think about your day. Think about your week. How are you feeling? We hear so consistently anxious, disappointed, lonely. And so it's like, okay, let's put these next to each other. Let's put our emotional reality, anxious, disappointed, and lonely next to how is a girl taught she's supposed to feel happy, content, and calm. And you see what happens to girls is when all of these feelings come up, they start to say things like, I'm making too big a deal out of it. I'm being too sensitive. I should just get over it. And they lose that that respect for their feelings. And there's no way then they're going to say, yeah, I can roll with the green apple, but can you pick up some red apples next time? Because <laughs> that's really my my thing, right? Which would be a very great feedback for us to get, right? And so that's how it's eroded over time. And then you get girls by adolescence where you're just asking, hey, how do you feel? And you get back this kind of numb shrug of the shoulders, mm-hmm. right? And then you don't, you don't even have the knowledge. You can't get to the respect because there's such a disconnect and 
there's a, we could go off on a whole nother tangent around cutting and right, how girls are trying to reconnect to themselves. So when we teach girls this foundation of knowledge, respect, and communication of their feelings, the reason why that becomes the foundation of leadership is that is the foundation of our ability to make choice and change. We can't have the agency to make choices in our life if we don't know how we're feeling in our life. I mean, just as you were telling the story, I'm thinking of how many times as an adult woman, how much unlearning, let's put it this way, like how much unlearning and real focus and consistent effort I have to do in my own life to be safe enough in my own body to feel those feelings. Then looking at as a mother, my daughter, and thinking, oh yeah, like it is really, and we, you know, I want to think like, oh, I've empowered my daughter to say what she feels and feel all the feelings, but there's so many other influences uh, that you see starting to come in in this middle school age um, that this is really fascinating of how they, how complex and just how deep it runs, but then to be able to honor those feelings and then act on them and have that rewarded, as you're saying, by the people potentially who are in those positions of power around them now that they've left the nest of home. (laughs) Right. Yeah, no, it is complex. And I think that's, I definitely see with my kids in the tween years or just begin, my oldest is nine. So I feel like he's like entering the tween years. And I definitely had this moment of like, oh, I need, I need like to be doing therapy right now. (laughs) Like I need to be taking care of myself and my development. If I'm going to be able to show up for him authentically during these years where things are getting more complex for him, right? So it is really, there is, I think, I mean, it's why we teach a girl grown up program because we know none of us were taught this stuff growing up, right? None of us were given these skills. We weren't given this permission. So then who's going to help us process the fact that we couldn't ask for what we needed emotionally or physically perhaps and now we're trying to give that permission to someone else I think I mean I think Brene Brown says we can't give our kids what we don't have right so it's yeah we have to go figure out is it is there a community that can help us develop this is there a therapist is there a class like this is really tricky and I think what's especially tough around the girl issue is really coming to terms with, okay, if my girl does this, there may be a cost. Like we have parents say to us, almost every presentation of girls leadership, like, what if I'm successful with giving my daughter a voice, right? Like that's, what if it doesn't work out for her? What if she doesn't get what she wants when she speaks up? And it's an important question to ask ourselves because of course our girls are not going to get what they want every time. That would be weird, right? That would be wrong <laughs> if they could. And so we have to prepare our girls in there for ourselves to use their voice and teach them that they are when they don't get what they want, they will always learn. They will learn about the relationship, right? And so with little girls, it's like, okay, sometimes you're going to learn that person you thought was a true friend that really cared about you, that's actually a classmate, right? That's somebody who maybe you don't want to be as vulnerable with. And 
And other times you're going to learn somebody thought was just a classmate, like actually turns out to be a good friend. And if we can give girls that muscle to do that learning, again, when the stakes are relatively low, then that muscle will be there and will be stronger later when not getting what you want or, you know, going through the paying the price for having your voice is harder, you know, as they get older. And have you been able to, because you said, you know, this is a program that's been around now for a little while. Have you been able to really see the direct impact or hear back from girls who've gone through this and now, you know, are in their twenties? I'd love to hear kind of what's the, what's the experience from their point of view? Yes. Yeah. I actually just, um, I was speaking with somebody last week that I taught when she was in sixth grade and now she's been a teacher for five years. <laughs> and I was like, Oh no. Oh, um, so yes, yeah, so we definitely have girls now who are in their twenties and perhaps even uh, getting close to 30. And it's really beautiful. The stories they come back with. It's often such like small and powerful moments where the things that they learn that stay with them are these like micro kind of micro leadership lessons. So for example, one of the simple things we teach girls is that when you hear an apology, just say, thank you. Right. Don't say it's okay. It's not okay. That's why the person's apologizing. You don't have to make it okay for the other person. That's not your job. They're the ones that messed up. So just say thanks for the apology. And sometimes something small like that can be big for a family to practice, can be big for a girl to learn because there's so much social pressure to say it's okay and to take care of others in that way. And so, yeah, when we hear from girls who are in their 20s where when people make mistakes, it can be a real mistake, right? It can be, and that they sat with that and were able to say, thank you for the apology. Like, I'm not telling you it's okay. (laughs) That that really shifts how they see themselves. So yeah, we hear back from roommate situations in college where, thank you for teaching me, I could ask someone to turn their music down, right? It's like, it's just such little things, but it's the little things that add up to how we think about our selves and how we're in relationship with other people. And as you were speaking, I was wondering, are these ongoing programs or a weekend? Like, how does it, how do, especially now that you've shifted to being able to do more national work, is it an ongoing program that the girls are kind of part of? How does the structure of the girls leadership program look now? Yeah. So there's a few different programs that we run. So we have what started as our overnight summer program has become, you know, day camps that are mostly this summer will be mostly online because of COVID. And we have one in Oakland, California, that's running in person. And then the family-based programs, which are probably our most popular programs, we run mostly during the academic school year and they run on a monthly basis once a week for four weeks. So families get together on Zoom and they click in um, and depending on the age of the girls, you know, for kindergarten, and first graders, they're pretty short um, up through and work with families up through eighth grade. Um, so K through eighth grade, we do once a week for four weeks and that gives families a chance to try out 
things in between and come back and say, that was hard or that worked well for us. Or, uh, you know, I taught it to my husband. It was great. <laughs> you know, do you do couples therapy? All those conversations. So we have the family-based programs and then we do uh, regular webinars. We really want this to be available for all families, uh, regardless of income level. So we have, uh, like I mentioned, the free Raising Resilient Girls every month. And if families can't pay for programs, there's scholarships. And we always, whatever family says that they can contribute, that's what works. And and we're just figuring out how to do more and more support for educators. And especially during such a challenging year for educators and folks who are holding the wellness of our kids in their work. Um, we've been looking a lot at like, what does a healing centered summer look like? I mean, we look for all of our programs right now, this is summer 2021. It's like, what do girls need? Um, we're seeing growing mental health challenges where it was already, you know, anxiety and depression for our girls was more than twice that of our boys and adolescents. Um, but we're seeing that grow faster for girls in COVID. And so trying to really be there to create the communities, the healing, the release of like that educators and adolescents especially need during this moment of our development, our collective experience. And why do you think it's so important? I mean, in terms of the collective healing, and I think that's, as you're saying it, I think we all need deep healing after 2020, right? Where we collectively have so much that we've just kind of had to move through and I'm sure we'll be processing for years but in terms of our girls and this idea of a collective healing, why, why is that so important? And how do you, how do you make space for that? Yeah, it's a really good question. I have to say that the collective healing for me as a white woman who grew up in a white culture, like that was not instinctual to me. I was like, what do you mean collective? Like we do therapy, we do our healing on our own. We read our books, <laughs> We go to therapy, we take bubble baths, we go for walks. Like, I think I come from very much an individualistic background. I think our dominant culture is a very individually driven culture. And what I've seen, especially during COVID, is that we're really coming up against the limits of individualism and seeing where it is not going to get us through this time. And so, while it's a part of what we all need, especially those of us who are introverts, we've been through a collective trauma, right? This has not been an individual experience. And I think part of what's made this a collective trauma is we have been isolated and we've been even more isolated as individuals than we've ever been in our lives and generations. And so we're seeing the price of that isolation. You know, we're seeing what happens when we can't share our experiences with people when we can't be there for people and give folks what they need and take what we need. And so we did a pilot workshop at Girls Leadership for a group of moms and it was it was called Compassion Fatigue Workshop. And we did, I think it was two parts, four parts, I can't remember how many parts, <laughs> but we, um, we came together to work, I think it was, yeah, multiple sessions on compassion fatigue. And what we found was there were some individual skills that were helpful to us during this time, such as self-compassion. That was a really key one as we were struggling as 
Dr. Neff has done a lot of work and out of Austin on on self-compassion. And so really building a concrete self-compassion practice so that as we struggle, as we inevitably will right now, we're not beating ourselves up in that process or modeling that for our girls, that our struggles are because limitations or weaknesses that we have, right? This is like our struggles are really part of a collective human experience right now. So there was some of that discussion, but what we're seeing in every area of wellness, whether it was like physical practices like exercise or spiritual practices or mindfulness practices or even like intellectual learning practices, that there were versions of that that could be individual like therapy or doing a yoga class by yourself. And that had a role, but that if we wanted this release and we wanted true healing, there was something else that happened when we went into a group, when we shared our emotional struggles with a group and, or when we exercised with a group on a walk or even the difference between an individual like YouTube Zoom versus like a Zoom yoga class versus working out in a park with friends, right? And so what we ended up, there was like two key things that came out of this pilot. One was that like the thing that the group needed the most to address our collective compassion fatigue was the group. It wasn't a skill. It was the community. And like, as a teacher who's always fixated on outcomes of like the participants will colon and then where's the outcome of this workshop or this class? <laughs> like that's how I was taught to think. And so again, for me coming from such an individualistic culture, I was like the group is the outcome, the community, like that was more radical than I would like to admit. <laughs> uh, but really eye-opening of all the ways and then that we're not at that what it takes to do that in a diverse community where we're having different experiences. That's a whole nother thing of like, this was a very diverse group. And so to, to build community without perpetuating some of the patterns of race dynamics of having the experiences of white women centered in the group and having white women dominate the group. Like I saw myself make mistakes over the three weeks and grow and change that were really powerful. And ultimately what we came away with was plans for ourselves that involved in every area of healing, both an individualistic and a, and a, and a collective approach. And, and, and then I think the question becomes who's in the collective. Mm-hmm. And so essentially you take that and attempt to mirror it with the younger girls and bring them the experience to do that in a collective, do you think? Yeah. So a lot of, I I think from that experience, a lot of what we're taking into our work is we've always had this there, but I don't know if I've ever seen it as clearly of like, for example, as an organization that started as an overnight summer program. And I don't know that we'll ever have an overnight summer program again. You know, this realization of like, it was we knew the girls came back year after year for the friends. That's not rocket science, right? Uh, but realizing, like, yes, the curriculum was there to give them these skills, but the community gave them the permission and the safety to try these things, to exercise these skills. And it really is that honoring the importance of that. And so, you know, when we design programs now, I think we're taking 
in this coming months more time than ever to build the community and especially a diverse community of like, we can't learn anything. Our kids can't learn in school. We as adults can't learn anything if we don't feel seen and valued and connected. And so if that has to take up 50% of a program time, if that has to take up 70% of a program, like whatever that has to take, (laughs) that has to be there before we can move forward because that is the healing. And it's like our brain, we all feel it right now. We can't articulate a sentence. We can't recall a name, right? Like we aren't functioning with, and and so we we have to do that work individually and collectively to get ourselves to a place where, I don't know, the, the processing can come back again on a like cognitive level to move, to feel some sort of forward momentum. Yeah. So busy mom and you're doing all of this and it sounds just like both, you know, fascinating and clearly part of your mission in life, but also must feel like it's a, it's a lot of work, right? And so how are you finding joy and finding time to cultivate joy amidst all this and in these times? Such a good question. And I'm also, I think I'll share some successes, but also share failures that I think are leading me to ask the bigger questions. So I've definitely put some boundaries on work because there were none in this whole working and living at home. And when my kids are back in school, which itself is such a joy, it's like the bus comes and it's this golden chariot coming down <laughs> the street. I have my heart literally like sings every morning. So I feel like even just that walking them to the bus, um, it's so many little things like that that feel so different now. And then I go on my own walk. And so, yes, I, I could start work at eight. I don't. Um, I started at nine and I have that hour for myself that I don't know I would have taken a year and a half ago and definitely spending more time outside. I think that my kids relationship to technology so shifted and we all became the, the zoom life thing happened. And so we're really prioritizing camping time, time in the woods uh, and doing like, we're barely Jewish, but really leaning into Shabbat and like, what does it mean to turn it off on Friday night and take that break on Saturday where we are not checking email and we are not gaming and we are pushing ourselves to, you know, put in the effort to ride a bike because we will feel so much more joy <laughs> than mm. if we lean back into what's easiest and what's rote, which is yeah. on our phones and on the iPads. Um, but I'll also be honest with you and say like, yesterday it was one of these days where it was like back to back, nonstop the between the kids and work, it just felt harried. Um, and my kids were like, what, you had a hairy day? Um, <laughs> harried, not hairy. And my co-CEO and I had a talk last night after the kids were in bed, I called her up at nine. And I was like, I think if we do this approach to meetings, and we limit this, we could get another hour out of our week here. And she just was like, Simone, like, this is so much bigger than finding an hour of more less meeting time in the week, like people's relationship to work has changed in COVID. Not Nobody is willing to do what we did before. Our wellness is too important. Our families are too important. Our joy is too important. And we need to slow down. And if girls leadership 
grows more slowly, if we solve our problems more slowly and we have to live with a problem that we want to solve for six more months because we just can't solve every problem at once, like we really need to fundamentally shift how we work. And she was like, are you ready to look at yourself and look at like, why do you work all the time? Like, why are you so comfortable doing this? And like, so I was like, let's go to like technology and platforms and this like tactical fix. And she was like, are you ready to go to therapy and like shift your relationship to work? <laughs> and I woke up feeling so much better than I have in a long time. Cause I was like, yes, I want that. I don't know how to do it yet, but I want, I am want to be part of a community that is doing that. We are all shifting our relationship to work and trying to get off the the treadmill that it feels like we've been trapped on. But it sounds like that's exactly the work you're trying to teach the girls. So how poetic and beautiful that you, that she was able to say that, that you see that and say, I can feel all this. I can name it. I can be with it. And then I can figure out how to fix it. And and decide what I do want, right? That's really, I don't know if you heard yourself say that, but it's beautiful. It's really, I mean, and that's so important, right? That we as women are working on this every day and asking our girls to do the same. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So yeah, there's there's joy in there for sure. Yep, definitely. Beautiful. Well, thank you for sharing the joy and the struggle and your mission with this amazing company. And just really glad to to hear about it. And we'll put links in the show notes for people that want to connect and learn more about your programming. And thank you for being here today. Thank you for having me. Thanks for the invitation. It's been really fun. My pleasure. If you love this podcast, and I so hope you did, please subscribe. That way you'll get real-time updates anytime I post a new episode. Feeling inspired and want to share the joy? Leave a review so others can find the podcast more easily. Want to hang out more with me? You can find me on the interwebs at www.anyarock.com. That's A-I-N-E-R-O-C-K. And I'm also on Instagram at Anya underscore rock your joy. Till next time, rock your joy. This episode was produced by Dante32.